turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We will be continuing our series in this, uh, this psalm. Give me a minute here. Now we've been away from the Song of Solomon for a little while because of various reasons. We had a couple of special messages and then we had some other interruptions from sickness and other things. But today we're coming back and I remind you that this song is an allegory about the relationship of Christ with His church. It's called the Song of Songs because there is no song like it. There's nothing higher to sing about than about the love that is between Christ and His church, which is here allegorically illustrated for us through the marriage relationship. So this song uses marriage to, to set forth the relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus if we are His people. Understand that this is the way that the Jews understood it from ancient times before Jesus even came. They saw it as something that was about the promised Messiah that was coming and the hope that they had in Him and His relationship with them as His people. And then the early church understood it that way and all the way up really until relatively modern times, it has generally been understood that way. The odd ones are the modern people who see it as only about marriage. That would not be the Song of Songs. I mean, marriage is a great thing, but the Song of Songs is about the relationship of Christ with His bride. That's the highest of all relationships. It has so much, this, this Song of Songs, this book of the Bible, has so much in it that is helpful for us. It shows us the desire that He has for us when we have become his people, the actual delight that he has in us. And that's something we've talked about that we don't always think about because, you know, of course, we know that, you know, he loved us while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And his love then was a love that you would have for an enemy that was reprehensible and that had nothing in them that was was lovely or, or, or appealing. We were corrupt and defiled. We were in our blood. We were ruined. But now, the Song of Solomon, you see, after we have come to Christ, it presents that He has affection and delight in us. He delights to see us make progress and to grow in grace. It gives Him great joy and pleasure. He wants to be with us. He loves to have communion with His people and to see their growth and their progress, to have them come and present themselves before Him in worship. So this is a very wonderful thing. The song shows us his delight in us as his bride. He's actually attracted to us as a bride, loving to be with us, rejoicing in us. It shows also, this song shows in a second way, it shows how we rejoice to be the object of his desire. I mean, what bride does not delight in being the delight of her husband's eyes? And here we have the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords the very Son of God. 
and to have him cherish us and delight in us, that makes us very glad then, as the song shows us, that we desire to be with him and we want to bring forth fruit that is pleasing to him. We love to present ourselves to him. I've talked about it as a little child would do. A little child makes something for their, their daddy. Maybe they paint a picture or something, work on it all day. And then when he comes home, they run and say, look at what I made for you. And so it is that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as He transforms our lives and works in us, we come to Him when we gather and we say, Lord, look at what You have done. You know, You have changed me. I have these new desires. I want to follow You. And we know that He's delighted with that. So we love to have Him express His affection for us, His his kisses to us. Lord, you know, it begins, the song of Solomon begins with that. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let him show me his love for me, his delight in me. And this song of Solomon also shows us the, the ups and downs of this relationship. It is very realistic, isn't it? It's not like we're always on the clouds and riding high with the delight in the Lord and him delighting in us. No, it's very realistic. It shows that there are times when when we're separated from him and when we maybe don't know why. Maybe we haven't particularly rebelled or done anything, but he's just far away and everything is dry like a desert in our relationship with him. And it shows us crying out for him and then him coming and returning to us. And it also shows us the reality of those times when, remember when uh, he, he comes to us and then, and then we push him off and then uh, he withdraws from us and there's a distance caused by that. And how we then are, are searching for Him and crying out for Him and, and looking for Him. And, and then there's the times when we do have some great experience with Him where He manifests His love to us in a fresh way that He has never done before. And we're, we're almost overwhelmed. We say, Lord, I can't even take anymore the, the greatness of Your love. That's a rare thing. We don't, no, maybe not everyone, not every believer has experienced that. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you if you haven't, but it, it, it's something that sometimes believers do experience. And it's, it's such an overwhelming delight and, and joy in Him. So there's, there's times when we're seeking and times when we're cold. There's times when we cannot find Him and times when He comes to us. But most recently, before... Uh, this week, as we were coming, when we were uh, doing the Song of Solomon before the holidays and everything, we looked at that time when we rebuffed him and when we were cut off from him for a little while. He came back, you remember, to us after a time of separation. We went around and we kind of received discipline and, and some hardship and stuff like that for that. But we were searching, we, we had come back, he had restored our heart. But he had not yet manifested his, his presence to us. And so we were yearning for him and we were going around searching and seeking after him. And it was a difficult time in the song. But then he came to us and he presented himself to us and he told us of his delight in us. And that he was even rejoicing in seeing us seeking him during that time. That he was actually near watching us in his garden, even though he didn't make himself known to us. Deliberately didn't. And uh, he did that, you see, to, to work in us and to test us. And he told us how much he, he loves us and how much he delights in the fruit that we have. How he cherishes it and wants to be with us. And then we responded, of course, to him and said, 
this is what we, the, the last week before uh, th- that we were in the Song of Solomon, that he came, or, or that we said to him, Lord, like, come away with me, and I'll, I want you to enjoy my fruit. You know, the fruits that I've laid up for you, the, the growth in my life, the things that have come about. Come, Lord, and let's go away to the villages. Let's go away to the vineyard. Let's spend time apart and away and, and, and wanting him to enjoy us and delight in us because he had said that, that he did, that that was his desire, that he wanted to be with us. And so we wanted to spend time with him. It was a very beautiful thing. Well, chapter 8 is really a continuation of that. It doesn't, it's a chapter division, but it, it, it keeps going with that. And it's, it, it, she expresses here, the bride, we, the bride, express a very interesting wish here. And I think the wish that she has is a wish that a bride would often have for the husband that she loves, that she would want to have this in her relationship with him. I'll read it to you and you can see for yourself. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. She says, Oh, that you are like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There is the word of God. In this text, we have then three things that we're going to look at today. Our wish that as his bride, that he would be to us like a brother to us, like my brother, we say. And secondly, our description of the effect that it will have upon us if he does do that. What will be the outcome of that? What will be the good effect that it will have if he does indeed show himself to us like our brother? And then thirdly, it seems that he does respond positively, affirmatively to that, and that she does have some experience of this. So the third thing is our delight in obtaining our wish that he indeed does come to be near to us. So let's look first of all at the wish. Our wish is his bride is, oh, that you were like my brother. Oh, that you were like my brother. Now, a healthy relationship between a brother and sister is a very dear relationship. It ought to be so. A sister feels comfortable with her brother. She can be free and open with him. She can share her heart with him because he's someone that has known her all her life. And she can bear her burdens to him and, and she can look to him for to lean on. She knows that he understands her and that she can trust him. We speak of a full brother here in the song, one, the one who nursed at my mother's breasts. So it's someone that we grew up with, that we had communion and sharing with as part of a family. Now, of course, they had 
Sometimes men would have more than one wife. This was one that was the same mother and the same father. So it was a full brother-sister relationship that stood out among the other relationships with a, a trust and a unity there, common experiences. We nursed at the breast of the same mother. You know how it was for Jacob's family when they were all divided up because of the different wives that he had, and there was conflict between, between one and another family. Women often desire this kind of relationship with their husbands. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 16, that she talked about her great delight in him, and she said, this is my beloved, and what else did she say? And this is my friend. And that's something that a a woman really wants to have. She doesn't want to just have a, a romantic partner. She wants to have a husband who is a friend that she can confide in and that she she has that she's comfortable with that she doesn't feel estranged from or threatened or intimidated that she can be near to him as as like a sister i remember when i was engaged to my dear wife and she spoke about this as something that that was very important to her that i was her friend and that she could talk to me about things that she couldn't talk to other people about That's the kind of thing that we want to have. So Jesus has graciously become a brother and revealed himself as a brother to us. So he has become a brother and he has revealed himself as such. How has he done this? Well, there's a number of ways that he's shown himself to be our brother and that he has become our brother. First, by the incarnation He became, when he became flesh, he became bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. He didn't become, as we read in Hebrews, an angel. No, he became flesh and blood like us. He became the seed of Abraham. He became our brother in the flesh. Not an angel, but a man. Second, by his father adopting us. He shows himself to be a brother and is indeed a brother. We, he gave all who believe in him, as we're told in 1 John, the right to become the sons of God. So that through him, we're actually adopted by the Father into the same family and we become co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Joint heirs with him so that we share an inheritance in our Father's house. The Bible talks about the inheritance that we have a lot. But when Jesus comes, then we realize that it's because of Him that we have an inheritance with the Father in the Father's house and that we are secure forever through Him because He is our brother. And then He has shown Himself and has become our brother by taking the role of kinsman redeemer something that a brother would do as a near kinsman for his loved sister, his beloved sister. You may know about this from the Old Testament. That was a thing where if, of course, they had uh, slavery so that if you couldn't pay your bills, then you might have to sell yourself as a slave or you might be sold by your parents as a slave because they have no way to, to pay their debts. And so then you are enslaved. Well, then if your brother 
had the means to do so, and maybe he came into some wealth somehow, and then he would come and redeem you. So in other words, he would pay to, to purchase you so that then you could be set free from your slavery. And that was a, a wonderful, gracious act that a brother would do because he loves his sister or his brother who had become a slave. Now, Jesus did that in a way that excels all that we could ever think or, or, or imagine in that he came seeing us in bondage and enslaved to sin and came to redeem us from sin and from the curse of the law. And how did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. He went to the cross in order to be our kinsman redeemer. He did the part of a brother because he is our brother. He laid down his life for us. He gave himself. What woman doesn't want that in her husband that he would be a man who would give himself for her like a brother would do? He would not let his sister remain in bondage. He did what needed to be done, the labor of his soul in order to set us free. It was intense labor that he had to endure. He said, punish me for what they did so they can be set free. We committed the crime and he did the part of the kinsman redeemer. Another way that he shows that we're his brothers is by calling us his brethren. We saw that in our scripture readings, didn't we? That who are my, who is my mother and my brother and my sister? He looked around at those that were following him. He said, these, these who, who do the will of God, these who have come to, to be my disciples, to follow me, to be saved by me. And we saw in Hebrews 2 that he is not ashamed to call us his brethren because he has sanctified us. He has done the part of the kinsman redeemer, as we said, so that now we're no longer enslaved to sin. Now we've been set free and we are able to serve God and he gives us his spirit so that we're able to serve God. He's done the, he calls us then his brethren. I will worship in the great assembly with my brothers, he says. I will declare to them what God has done and sing praises with them. We're, we're his people now. We're, we're his family. And then the fifth way is by, he's shown himself to be a brother, is by inviting us to come freely to him as the one who understands us and who sympathizes with us. That's what we read in Hebrews 2. I mentioned it when we read it. You know, he suffered more than any of us. I hate, hate, hate it when someone says, well, Jesus couldn't really understand what I'm going through. He suffered more than you will ever even dream of suffering in order to bear the curse for your sins. You have no idea what he suffered. It's the other way around. And he comes to us not as one that says, well, I had to suffer a lot more than you did. What are you, what's wrong with you? He comes as one who sympathizes with us as a dear brother who loves us. And he's afflicted in all of our affliction. They're very light compared to his affliction. Paul said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Paul said that. The man that got beaten all the time and put in prison and had harassed all the time and chased around and stoned. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment because he knew what his Lord had endured for him. He has real compassion on us then as a brother in our affliction. Don't we desire that? 
He was also tempted in every way we are. We think we have temptation. What if you had to go and bear the sin of someone else? If that was your calling and your duty that you had, you, you would want to do something else. He wanted to do something. He despised the cross. And yet, because of the joy that was set before him in doing this for his brothers and sisters, then he went gladly to bear that for us. He knows what it is to be tempted, though, when we're tempted, and therefore he is able to to be a brother to us in that temptation and to help us. He also supports and comforts us. He holds us up because he knows the trials that we endure. He protects and guards us as a brother because we have enemies that are all around wanting to destroy us. He knows all about those enemies. They destroyed him. They delivered him up to be crucified. He had to deal with Satan. So as a brother, he stands guard for us and protects and defends us. And then he counsels us and corrects us. As a godly brother, he leads us in ways that are good and sweet. He tells us how to live. He tells us how to handle difficulties that come our way. Yes, you see, this is a very wonderful thing that, to have him as our brother. He has shown himself to be such in all of those ways. So our request here is that we might grow into our brotherly relationship with him. Because you see, there is a bit of uneasiness between us and him. And so that's why we say, oh, that you would be like a, my brother. Because we know that, that uneasiness. I mean, after all, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the very Son of God, the Holy One of God, who is completely without sin, without defect, without fault. He is the one who rules over all heaven and earth. And for us to come to Him, we stand in awe and amazement before Him and His greatness. Can we approach Him at all? He dwells in inapproachable, inaccessible light. And it's not that we don't want him to be like that. We, it's not that we wish that when we say that you would be like my brother, that, that he would be something less than he is. We want him to be that and still have the relationship of familiarity and comfort before him as our brother. Oh, that you are like my brother. You as you are, not you reduced to something that I'm comfortable with, but you exalted as you are to be like a dear brother that I can lean on and that, that I can trust in. We, we, want to, we don't want to be intimidated, you see. We want to be more comfortable and more familiar with him than we are. This is the desire of all those who have come to him. You remember with Mary Magdalene when Jesus had risen from the dead and how she wanted to cling to him. She, she felt close to him. She felt near to him as a brother. She could go right up to him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, risen from the dead and lay hold of him. Now he said, don't cling to me because I'm not staying here. He wanted her to know the reality. We're not going to always have that, that closeness that, that we would desire. But we desire it and it is right for us to desire what it is is we want free and easy access to him. That we can come to him the way that a a woman could come to her brother, even if he's the king, even if he's a great king. She's his sister. She can come and talk to her brother. It doesn't matter that he's some great one like that. 
She can find him. We don't want those times, you see, that, that we've read about in the Song of Solomon when, when we're estranged from him and we can't find him and we go looking for him and, and he's not to be found anywhere. So we're saying, oh, that you would be like a brother that would be near to me, that I wouldn't have this, this distance that's caused by, by my sin and by all these other problems. It pleases him for us to want to be near him like this. He is delighted to see our desire to be with him. He wants us to have these desires. We see him then more and more as a brother to us over the years as we walk with him. We grow into the comfortable, familiar relationship with him as our brother. He has promised that he will at the last day, be a brother to us in all of the fullness that that entails. He has said that he will return for us, that he will come in glory. He's not going to come in a reduced way. He's going to come in all of his glory, surrounded by attendants of heaven with trumpets and everything else. And it says, and then we will see him and we will be like him. And that we will forever be with the Lord. What encouraging words those are. We're going to always be with Him. There's not going to be those times of pulling apart and estrangement in that day. We're going to be with that glorious one as our brother. That's what He promises to us. Those words that now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So that's the first thing, our wish. Oh, that you would be like my brother to me. And then the second thing, we describe the effect it will have on us for him to be like our brother. Here we think of three wonderful effects that it will have on us. And we speak of these. Perhaps we speak of them here in part to motivate him to be like a brother to us because we know that that he loves us and we know that he wants to have intimate communion with us. He wants us to know him like a brother and that he wants to have that, that kind of fellowship with us. And so we say, Lord, if you will be like a brother to me, then this will be the outcome. This will be the result if you will do this for me. So we're saying, be like a brother to me, and this is what I will then do, what I will be able to do. It's not like we're, <laughs> we're negotiating with him, but we're just saying, if you're like a brother, I'm going to be able to do this. This is going to be the outcome. Okay, so let's look at it. First, that there's three things here. First, that we will freely kiss him outside, okay, in the public square, without shame. It's in verse 1. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. It is an expected thing for a sister to show public affection to her brother when she sees him, to show warm affection and gladness even in public. No one thinks ill of her for doing this. Even if this one is the, the president or some dignitary or some great king or something like that, 
a woman runs up to him and starts to, to kiss him and hug him and greet him. And somebody says, who is that? What is she? And someone says, that's his sister. And oh, okay. Was, yeah, I understand now. It's his sister. Oh, that's why she treats the king like that. It's, it's nothing inappropriate for a sister to do that. And that's what she's talking about here. The more he is like a brother, then the bolder we will be about kissing him in public. The more that he is revealed as a brother to us and we see him as such, other people see him as such, we're more disposed to show our allegiance to him in public even before our enemies, his and our enemies. They know that we have been with him. You remember in Acts when they were persecuted and it said they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's why they were behaving the way they were about Jesus. That's why they were proclaiming his goodness in public. Why they were delighting in him in public. Why they were not ashamed because he is our brother. It makes it easier for us to suffer for him. You remember also that they said they, 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 they came before him after they were beaten and everything for following him. And they count, it said that they, they were praised God that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name, for their brother. We were able to, to suffer for him. When the relationship is obvious, you see, of a brother to us, then we are freer. We are freer to speak of our love for him to other people. When they see that we have a relationship with him, then we talk about it more freely. We're freer to praise him. Maybe they're speaking ill of him and they're talking about him in a way that's not true. We say, no, no, he's not like that. He's like this. And we set the record straight. He's very gracious and kind and good. They say, well, well, why does he mow down his enemies the way he does? Because his enemies are opposing people from coming to his father and from, from serving and worshiping. And they're, they're trying to destroy everything. And he comes to defend us and protect us. We tell those who don't know him about him too. Someone that just doesn't know him. We go to them and say, oh, let me tell you about him. Because we have that relationship. We have a delight in him as our brother. Let me tell you how good and how kind he is, how gracious, how holy, how pure, how wonderful, how perfect he is. That's the first thing. Okay, we freely kiss him outside in the public square. Secondly, we tell him that we will bring him into our mother's house if we have this brotherly relationship. It will be easier for us to bring him into our mother's house Notice in verse 2, I would lead you, if you're like a brother to me, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. We'll find it much easier to invite him home when he is like a brother to us. We think again about him being a great king of kings and the Lord of lords. A girl wouldn't think of, you know, think about Solomon. And, you know, just, oh, I'm going to go get Solomon and bring him over for supper. How are you going to do that? <laughs> if he's your, your husband, if he's like a brother to you, then if he's, he's president, he's the leader, he's some great king, 
Come over to my mom's house. Come to my little village. Come and enter my house with me and see my family here. This is the kind of thing. When she marries him and he is like a brother, there's no hesitation about bringing him home. Remember that in the Song of Solomon, what is the house of the mother? The house of our mother is the church. You remember what we said about the bride? She's complex, isn't she? She's one bride made up of many members. She brings forth herself, okay? Like she's married to the Lord Jesus, and she brings forth children for him, and those children become part of the bride, okay? The Bible talks about that a lot, like in Isaiah and different places, it talks about that kind of, how our, our, that our maker is our husband, and that we have lots of children through him. So she brings forth herself, and then she also teaches herself, doesn't she? She gives counsel to herself, and she gives warnings and admonitions and various things to herself. So we were instructed by our mothers, it says here, by the church about him, she who instructed me. Or it could be the present tense. The Hebrew isn't really clear on that. The one that instructs me, my mother who instructs me. What did the mother do? Well, she taught us about the covenant relationship that he has with his people, about things that he has promised to us and that he has given to us. She told us about his person, about his character, about his reliability, his faithfulness, his holiness, his truth, his goodness. She told us about his work, the saving work that he did. She preaches the cross to us and tells us how we are redeemed and brought from the darkness to the light by his saving work. She told us of his love, that even while we were yet sinners, that he loved us and gave himself for us, and that now he cherishes us and wants to be with us now that we have been made his people and delights in our progress. She told about his grace, how he works in us, and even when we don't deserve it, how she taught us how to please him. How can you please this one? The church has taught us that here is what he wants from you. Here is his calling. Here are his commandments. Here are the lovely ways that he has given you to live in his house with your brothers and sisters. She tells us about the inheritance that we have with him in his house, what he has given us, the house that he has prepared for us. All of this, though, all of that, the mother can teach, the church can teach her children in a kind of an impersonal way. In other words, we can learn all of those wonderful things about our Lord Jesus and not know Him like a dear brother, one that we really come to and we delight in and we rely on and we trust in and we confide in. There can be a distance like I spoke about before. And so this is, this is the issue here. When he is like a brother to us, then we delight to bring him into the house and say, here he is to our brothers and sisters in the house. Our family, in other words, the church, our brothers and sisters, or even we could think of it as our immediate family too, benefit 
when we have this relationship with him like a brother. We bring him home with us. We bring him into the house with us. All it takes is one believer in a congregation of God's people to have this a clear sense of our Lord Jesus Christ as our brother and to bring that into the to bring him in. She brings him with her when she's with God's people and she talks of him and speaks of him in that way. And it's contagious. It benefits all of the people who are in the family of God. We do not connect with him so often. Our worship can be just a mere formality. We don't really connect with him personally. But as there are those in the church that that grow in this relationship with him as a brother, they begin to help others to be able to worship our risen Savior not so distantly anymore. Even one member can make a huge difference. She brings him into the house with the rest of us and introduces him around, speaks of him, walks with him. So that's the second thing. If he will be like a brother to us. So, so these, are the, these are the blessings and the benefits that, that, that come about from that. And then the third effect, if Jesus will be familiar to us like a brother, we tell him that we will entertain him in our house. Verse 2, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Now, in the ancient world, we've talked about how they loved to mix their wines and they would put in they, they would get their wine and then they would put in some other kinds of juices and things to, to make a nice wine that was very pleasing, very delightful to the palate and otherwise. They would mix wine for their special guests. It was something that they did quite regularly. And we do not forget here that though he is friendly to us like a brother, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is a, a, a majestic one. And so when we bring him into the house, we want to give him the best entertainment. We want to show hospitality to him. We want him to be pleased that he has come into our house. We want to give him a, a warm welcome and bring him things that he will delight in and that he will rejoice in. We envision here giving him royal treatment. We want to please him with every possible comfort that we can provide for him. We want him to be glad that he came into our house. We are eager to please him. Now we have seen in the song that the spiced wine and such things as that represent our affection for him and the fruit that we have brought forth for him. These are the things that he delights in most of all. He delights in our fruit and our affection. When we worship Him then, we want Him to find pleasure in us, in our fruit and our affection, in our love for Him, in our love for His children and for each other. We want Him to be pleased to be with us, to see us loving each other, caring about each other, in our growth, in our understanding of doctrine, of His teachings, who he is, 
what is revealed to us in Scripture. We say, Lord, I learned something of you. This is wonderful. And we go and we speak to him of it when we gather for worship. In our delight in his ways and his promises, maybe God's promises have been very special to us. We come in worship before him. Maybe we hear something at church and our heart is moved before him and we entertain him that way. He is pleased to see us delighting in him in our willingness to suffer for Him. He sees that we're ready to lay down our life for Him. Maybe that we even say, Lord, thank You that I was counted worthy to suffer for Your name this week. In our joy, in our gratitude, in our commitment to Him, He delights in these things. In our admiration of His glory, when we see more and more and more of His glory, He delights in us delighting in Him just as a a husband would his wife. In our faith, in our dependence upon Him, we come and say, Lord, without You, I can't do anything. Lord, I can't stand against these temptations. I can't endure. And we trust in Him and we say, Lord, I know that You will undertake for me, that You will deliver me, that You will lead me out. I know that in You I have forgiveness of sins. I can't atone for my sins But Lord, I trust all the more in you than I ever have before because I understand my need. And in our hope of the inheritance that we have with him, when we worship, we're delighting in the future promises that we have. And we bring that delight before him. It entertains him. He's glad that he came among us when he finds these things flourishing in our house. Worship, then, is about honoring Him. We do that the best when we know that He is like a brother to us, that He is near to us. Then our worship is a personal response to Him rather than something where we're far distant from Him. We come before His face and we honor Him. It's not just doctrine, but we take delight in in who He is as we learn of Him in our worship. What a difference it makes when He is like a brother to us. Tell Him then that that is your wish. The first point that we saw, oh, that you would be like my brother. It appears in the flow of the song here that He grants our request Of course, not in all the fullness that it's going to be granted. We always live, you see, with a a waiting expectation of the fullness of that brotherly relationship that we will have when he appears at the last day. There's always much, 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 much more for us to anticipate. But in the meantime, he grants to us more and more of a measure of a sense of that relationship with him as our, a dear brother to us, so that we grow into that relationship. It's granted in such a way sometimes that we're enraptured. We've seen that in the Song of Solomon, and here we see it again. She has asked him for this. We have asked him for this as his bride in this song, and we express here, thirdly, our delight in having obtained our wish. Again, in a measure. We speak of ourselves as in His loving embrace. 
Look at verse 3. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. The bride has spoken of this posture before. Back in chapter 2 and verse 6, when she was transported by his embrace to the point that she couldn't even stand it. She said, I, I, can't, I can't endure anymore, she said. She was just overcome by, by his loving embrace. His left hand, you see it's described there, his left hand behind her head, supporting her, and his right hand embracing her. Here, in that embrace, she is assured of his love and acceptance of her. In that embrace, when he is manifesting his love to her, she has security, knowing that she is upheld by his everlasting arms, that he supports her and holds her up. Here in that embrace, there is delight in his commitment to her, in his nearness to her, that he expresses to her when he manifests his love to her and shows his kisses to her, that he delights in her. This is what we experience when Jesus manifests his love to us, especially in worship. He opens our heart to his covenant promise so that we believe it, so that we see the love that he has for us. He works in us by his Spirit to convince us of the truth of all of His promises and all that He has said. His love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we perceive His great love as we have not perceived it before. We see His holiness and we see our sin when we're in His embrace. It's not that we don't see that anymore. In fact, we see it more than we've ever seen it before. And He delights in the broken and contrite heart that we have as those who are so unworthy of Him. The sweet humility that we have that sees that that He has taken us and He delights in our fruit, even though we come so short of His glory. We see His freely given justifying grace in His embrace like we've never seen it before. His powerful cleansing of the cross we cherish more than we've ever cherished it before. We see His full acceptance of our person and of our service to Him. Yes, we see even what we've seen in the Song of Solomon, His delight in us and in our fruit. Such times are all too rare, and we may have to wait for years to experience such times with our groom, with our brother where we have so clear perception of him as in his embrace in the way that the bride speaks about him. She doesn't live in that embrace all the time, does she? No, there's times when she's going around looking for him and can't find him. But how precious it is when we experience those times with our Lord. This is the place in his embrace, his left hand behind my head, and His right hand embracing me, the place of sheer delight and of deep happiness. We realize that nothing else matters but to be loved by Him. 
from this, our life is made whole and complete. From having Him, we have hope of eternal life and of life as those who are created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, that we will be able more and more and more to live beautiful, holy lives by His grace. Now we can be holy. Now we can live beautifully. Now we can live forever. Now we can be a blessing to others and a delight to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rapturous delight in His arms, in His loving embrace. Now once again, what does the bride do in the song when she's in this embrace? She speaks to her fellow members. Again, she's a complex bride, one bride, many members. So here she is, this this mature one in the body of Christ, and she has experienced this embrace of the Lord as her brother in answer to her great desire that he would be like a brother to her. And then she charges her fellow members. She addresses them with these words that she has used before. Here's the charge, verse 4. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, you disciples of, of the church, disciples of Jesus Christ, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. You've heard that before. It's important. It's mentioned three times in the Song of Solomon. It was in 2-7 when she had that experience that we just talked about where she had this thing where she was in his embrace with his left hand behind her head and right arm embracing her. And then she she brought this charge to the daughters of Jerusalem at that time. And then she did it again in 3-5 and now she does it here. Now many understand this charge as a, a charge that we would do nothing, that the daughters of Jerusalem would do nothing to disturb him so that he might be grieved and he might depart from us. And that's a very important idea. I mean, we don't, we don't want to do something that will drive him away. We don't want to rebuff him and turn a cold heart to him and, and push him out because we've seen the consequences of that. And so it's, it's an important concept But I don't think it's what's taught in this passage according to the words. The language, I don't think, supports that interpretation. So that's an important thing. You don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. You don't want to grieve the Lord Jesus. But I don't believe it's what's being taught here. We've we've seen it before. I don't know if you remember what I told you about it. But here's the interpretation that I believe is true to the words. That she is advising her members not to settle for anything superficial are artificial here. The point is that we should wait for real love. You see, it doesn't say, do not stir up nor awaken him until he pleases, but it says not to awaken love as a concept until it pleases. So the point is that we should wait for real love and not settle for something as a substitute some artificial substitute. As believers, we desperately want to have this closeness with our Lord. We want Him to be like a brother to us. We want to be familiar with Him and comfortable with Him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. It's right for us to want that, 
to want to be familiar with him, to want to have free, to be able to freely express our affection for him publicly and privately. We want that, but it takes time for that to develop, for that kind of a relationship to develop. Yes, we have something of that sense of him as a brother as soon as we come to Christ. And many times we're, we're over the moon because of it. But then there's more, isn't there? There's more that's needed. There's more growth. There's always more. In fact, again, it will never fully be developed until he returns in glory at the last day. And we see him face to face and we're ever with the Lord. So don't, the admonition here, the charge, the solemn charge that she gives here is don't resort to artificial stimulation. You know, the golden calf thing. That's what Israel did. Where, where is this Moses fellow? He's, he's gone. He's nowhere to be found. Let's do something so that we can come near to the Lord. Let's make a golden calf and we can, we can sing and dance around this calf. The Egyptians, they had those, those golden calves that they would use for the throne of their gods. So we'll make a throne for Jehovah here, and then we can celebrate and worship, and we'll all be close to him, and we'll be, we'll be excited and enthusiastic, trying to stir up ecstasy with dancing and emotional music and multimedia, multi-sensory worship that God hasn't appointed for us in the new covenant, or resorting to other things, resorting to legalism, we will, we will keep these rigid rules and then we will be close to the Lord. No, you won't. Or the prosperity gospel that says, oh, if you come and follow Jesus, he'll give you everything you want in this world. You'll have success and you'll have all the riches you want and all the comforts that you want. No, that's a false gospel. Or fake charismatic gifts. Speaking in tongues and getting all emotional and high with that when it's not even a real language that you're speaking. It's just muttering and babbling. That's not how to get near to the Lord. Or trying to be extra spiritual by denying yourself of long fastings and, and, and uh, denying yourself of marriage or, or, or some other deprivation, going out in the cold or, or doing something, trying to, trying to get near to God, living in a cave or something. Praying to Mary. Oh, I feel closer to the Lord when I can come to, to Mary or when I pray to the saints. Positive thinking techniques. I'm going to think positive and everything will be good then. Stimulants of any kind. People have actually used drunkenness and drugs and things like that to try to have communion with the Lord. That's how pagans often worship. That's how they did. The Corinthians, you remember, were, were getting drunk at the Lord's table. This is not what we need. Instead, make diligent use of the ordinary means of grace that he has given to us and wait for these to transform you over the years. Regular time in prayer and in his word, seeking, worshiping him faithfully over the years, coming to the Lord's Supper. Let love grow up naturally not artificially. The church then solemnly charges us about this because this has been a constant problem for her in every single age. Israel had the golden calf, as we mentioned before, 
when she came into the land after that, over and over and over again, she worshipped at the high places. She said, we don't want to just worship God at Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at Jerusalem. We want to do that in our local area as well. We want to have a greater access to Him and to be near to Him, you see. And so let's set up worship here in this high place or in this grove of trees, and then we can offer sacrifices there. Over and over and over, God said, don't do that. And over and over and over, they did that. Over and over and over, the prophets rebuked them. Over and over and over, they did it again and again and again. In the history of the church, after the New Testament, the New Covenant times, what did God appoint for us in the New Covenant? He appointed simple worship. Paul says, I betrothed you to Christ as a virgin, but I fear that you've departed from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. What do we do instead of the simple worship that He has given us? We add priests with robes. We add incense. God has not appointed incense in the New Testament. We add holy days besides the Lord's Day. Advent wreaths. Ceremonies that the Lord never appointed. Worship of icons. Worship of saints. Pictures of Jesus on stained glass that help us to feel closer to Him. Prohibition of certain foods or of marriage. Or we go the contemporary route. We add drama. Because I can relate better to drama than I can to the preaching of the Word. I like to have a scene before me. Did you know that the early people in the early church were, were like that? That that was what they were used to in the Greek religion? That they would do dramas and plays and things. And that was how they had their, their teaching and their communion with God. Paul said, I will not, I refuse to do that. We don't use those methods. We declare with simplicity the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through the foolishness of preaching that people are brought to Him. Not through the drama and the ceremony and the show. We have our worship teams. We have our stand-up comedy. We have instruments. The church used no instruments for the first seven centuries. And now we say, oh, but we can't live without them. We can't worship God without our instruments. We want to have our band. We want to have our our orchestra, whatever kind of music it may be that we like, our drums, our trumpets, whatever it is. God did not appoint instruments in the new covenant. All the covenant fathers knew that all the way for seven centuries and even after that. But yet we say, oh no, we, this is important for us if we're to be near to the Lord. Songs of human composition. The early church sang the Psalms of David. But instead, we want to add our own songs that we're more comfortable with. See, we're trying to be comfortable with Him, comfortable with the Lord. But it's not Him when we do that. We even use sensual songs. Or we say, give us interviews with famous people. Let us have a great hockey hero or a football hero or a war hero come and give his testimony. And then that will bring us to God. That will make us come near to Him. Or we want special effects. We want to have noises and smells and 
sounds and different things to, to enhance our worship. Multimedia presentations. It's hard to find worship that is not saturated either with the traditions of men or the innovations of man. Designed, all of them designed to stir us up, to be near to the Lord and to be moved by our relationship with Him. But that will awaken, only awaken and stir up superficial, artificial love. You don't want that. That's what the bride is saying here. You want to have true love for Jesus as He is, not artificially stimulated and stirred up love. I think that's the reason, perhaps, that God gave us such simplicity in our New Testament worship. Think about something like Christmas. It's a very attractive and appealing thing, isn't it? People look forward to it and they say, oh, it's Christmas. I feel so warm. I feel so, so near to God at this time of year and, and thinking of, about these things. It's very attractive. But tell me, do people who have no relationship, no saving relationship with Jesus Christ, not also have those same affections around the traditions and everything, that it's that time of year, I'm in the Christmas spirit, I have the warmth, I have the joy, I have the delight, it's so wonderful, wonderful time of year that it is, that sort of thing. Of course, often it's not so wonderful for people, but there is that desire to to have that. Rarely happens with biblically... Uh, regulated worship. When we do only the simple things that God has given us to do in worship, then unbelievers, they don't get much out of it unless they're being drawn to the Lord. These other things, you can be all stirred up and emotional and know nothing of the Lord. It's artificial. It's artificial stimulation. We want to have the real deal. That's what the bride is saying. Do not stir up her awakened love until it pleases. Don't try to force it. We may have to wait long to experience that. We will experience it, at least when Jesus comes back. But I believe that we can expect to experience it by degrees as well as we go forward with our Lord year after year. So let's commit ourselves to avoid all the shortcuts and all the artificial stimulants Ask Him to be like a brother to you. Ask Him to make Himself familiar to you and to show you His love. Then wait patiently for Him to answer. He will answer you. And you will be very glad that you waited. The bride was glad. That's why she admonishes the daughters of Jerusalem to wait. Please stand. And let's call on the name of the Lord and ask Him, indeed, to be like a brother to us. O Lord, our Lord, we come before You with gladness and thanksgiving for what You have revealed to us in Your Holy Word. We thank You for the Song of Solomon that shows us and teaches us about our relationship with You. And Father, we do not believe that it is in vain that three times it warns us, it charges us, the bride charges herself not to stir up or awaken love, until love pleases, until it pleases. We pray, Father, that we would then 
pursue the real thing, that we would come to you, Lord, desiring that you would be like a brother to us and that we, through the ways that you have appointed, would draw near to you and to continually seek you and that, Lord, you would be pleased to indeed make yourself known to us more and more and more in that way. Please, Father, we are asking you to to visit us, O Lord. We, We think about what is said in the Bible and how that at the end of the book of Genesis, after all that the people had been through, then Joseph ends there with the words, the Lord will surely visit you. As the people were getting ready to go into a time of darkness and deprivation and slavery in Egypt, he said, the time will come when the Lord will surely visit you. He set before them the hope that they had. And Father, we see that again and again in the Bible, how many times have you promised to your people that you would indeed visit them? We think about at the end of the Old Testament when it tells us that you will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. And we think about the, in the New Testament how our Lord Jesus, when he was going away from his disciples, what did he say but that I will come and manifest my love to you while I'm gone away. You will have much tribulation, but the Father and I will come and we will manifest our love to you. And he also tells us, or or we have at the very end of the Bible, those words, even so come, Lord Jesus. Come and be to us our brother that you have promised to be in all the fullness of that promise. Oh Lord, we thank you that you delight in us, that you delight in our desire and our affection for you. And we pray that we would bring forth much fruit that pleases you. Father, we pray that that you would indeed show yourself to be like a brother and that we would have the, the results that we spoke of, that we would freely speak of you in the public square, that we would bring you into the house of our mother and introduce you around, so to speak, as, as the one who is near to us and dear to us. And Father, that we would have that, that fullness of of hope in in who you are. Oh Lord, we thank you for for all that you have done for us and for for the glory that has been revealed through Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins to those like us, that he is indeed like a dear brother to us. Please bless us now as we turn to come to the Lord's table. Refresh us, Lord, and feed us and give us a greater blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated as we prepare to come to the Lord's table now. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We do not see him now face to face in the way that we will see him at the last day. So that's why Peter says that, though though you don't see him, you love him. We do not see him like that yet, but we love him. He has revealed himself to us as our brother, as we have seen today. 
And we now yearn for him to be nearer still, more accessible, more familiar to us than he has yet been. At the table, he comes to us in a special way to manifest his love to us. And we are to cherish this time with him and ask him to draw near to us at this table. He makes himself accessible to us here so that we can enjoy the testimony of his love and commitment and refresh ourselves in the remembrance of how great his love is. That's what he shows us here. My body given for you. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. It is a special time when he is saying, I am your kinsman redeemer. This is what I have done for you. I have given myself for you so that we will know him as a dear brother to us who cares for us in all the ways that we have looked at today. He has been crucified for us. Hear the words of institution from Luke 22 where he expresses his desire to make himself known to us in the breaking of bread. Luke 22:14 When the hour had come he sat down and the 12 apostles with him then he said to them with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I say to you I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Isn't it simply marvelous that our Lord Jesus Christ wants to make himself known to us, wants us to be refreshed in knowing him as the one who gave himself for us? That's why he presents himself in this way to us at this table. What comfort it gives to all of us who are trusting in him. If you're a communicant member of a faithful church, you're welcome to partake. Ask the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, He Himself, to make Himself known to you as your dear brother. Familiar and comfortable relationship. But if you're not a member in good standing, that is, if you're either under church discipline or are not a member of His visible church at all, then you shouldn't come to this table. Also, you should not come if you're not trusting in Him. If you're not looking to him to save you from your sins, if you don't want to be saved, if you don't care about being saved, even if you are a member in good standing, or if you're, if you're looking to your own works, thinking that you are good enough for God. No, we need to come as those who know that we're sinners and need his salvation. Also, you shouldn't come unless you're committed to following him and becoming what he has called you to be. We struggle, we limp along, we come short. 
but is your desire to have communion with him so that you can walk with him and be strengthened to know him better and to serve him better. We come, you see, with hunger to this table or we don't come in the right way. Maybe we even come with hunger to be hungry. That's a a right way to come too. If we know that we need to be hungry and we come asking him to work in us. But don't come in an insincere way to this table. Come in a way of one who is who is looking to Christ for the blessing that, that he gives to his people as he shows us what he has done for us so that we might take a greater joy and delight in him and that we might serve him more fully. Let's ask him then to, to bless us. <clears throat> our gracious Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray, Lord, that, that right here and right now at this table, that you would be pleased to make yourself known to us in the breaking of the bread. Father, that we would see clearly your great love for us, though it is shown to us week after week in this way as we come to the table. Father, we pray that week after week that we would see it more clearly than we did the week before. Father, we know that that's perhaps not even realistic, but we pray, Father, that we ask you that it would be so. That is our desire, and we know that you can do that. We pray that we would be ever-growing, ever-moving upward in our walk with you, in our familiarity and comfort with you, not as one that we look at, that we bring down so that we can be comfortable and familiar with, one that is a sinner like us, or one that is not holy, or one that is not majestic, but Father, that we would be able to walk with you, the very Son of God, that you, Lord Jesus, that we would be able to come to you with a a brotherly uh, sense of you being our brother and a comfort and, and, and delight and accessibility that goes with that. Please, Lord, will you help us, Lord? Will you meet with us here? We ask you, Lord, visit us, please, and bring refreshment to our souls. We want to please you. We want to walk with you. Father, we thank you so much for giving us these ordinances and for the ability that we have to participate in them. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.